been talking about Turing, I'll start out by having a quote from Turing. That's the reason I have my machine, is to make sure I get this quote right. So everyone knows that Turing talked about the imitation, uh, the imitation game as being a way of trying to figure out about whether or not a system was actually intelligent or not. But what people often don't appreciate is that in the very same paper, about three paragraphs after the part that everybody quotes, he said, wait a minute, maybe this is completely the wrong track. And in fact, what he said was, instead of trying to produce a program to simulate the adult mind, why not rather try to produce one which simulates the child? And then he gives a bunch of examples of how that could actually be done. So for several years, I've been saying, listen, here's this quote. Everybody stops reading after the first section. They never actually get to the second section. But when I was actually searching at lunch to make sure that I got the quote right, I discovered that there are now about, when you, when you Google this, you now come up with a whole bunch of examples of people saying, wait a minute, this is actually the thing that you should be quoting from Turing, and nobody ever quotes it except me, you know, 2014 in the next last year or so. And I think there's actually a reason for that, which is that the explosion of machine learning as a basis for the new AI has made people appreciate more generally the fact that if you're interested in uh, systems that are actually going to learn about the external world, the system that we know of that does that better than anything else that we know of in the universe is a, is a human child. So a human child would be a good place to look. Now, one of the consequences of that that I think is not so obvious is that actually thinking about children not just as this is an immature form of the thing that learns that ends up being an adult intelligence, but actually thinking about children as being a separate kind of intelligence, which is sort of implicit in the, in the Turing quote, that that actually turns out to be an idea that fits with a lot of really interesting ideas in evolutionary biology to talk about the interdisciplinary, uh, an interdisciplinary relationship. So in evolutionary biology, there's increasing work on the idea of life history. And I'm sort of amazed, if you talk to developmental psychologists, for instance, like me, they've never even heard the word life history. Life history is the idea about the developmental trajectory of a species, how long a childhood it has, how long it lives, how much parental investment there is, how many young it actually produces. And it turns out that that general feature of what its life history is like is often much more uh, explanatory of other features of the organism than things that might seem to be more apparent. And in particular, a relationship that comes up again and again and again is a relationship between what we perhaps anthropomorphically think of as intelligence, things like being able to deal with many different kinds of environments, learn about them and adapt to them effectively. That turns out to be very, very consistently related with a particular life history pattern, namely a life history where there's few young, there's a very long period of immaturity and dependence, and there's a great deal of uh, parental investment. So the strategy of producing just a few younger organisms, giving them a long period where they're really, really incompetent, where they're incapable of taking care of themselves, and then having a lot of resources dedicated to caregiving, to keeping them alive, that turns out to be a strategy that over and over again is associated with higher levels of intelligence. And that's not just true for primates. You can see this in analyses of hundreds and hundreds of primates. It's true for birds, it's true for cetaceans, it turns out that it's even true for insects. So if you look at different subcategories of butterflies, for example, that depend more or less on learning, what you see is that they have a different developmental trajectory such that the ones that depend on learning have a, a longer period of immaturity and produce fewer offspring. 
Um, it turns out to even be true for plants, to get back to some of the things that, that we were talking about, we were talking about Caroline. Um, it turns out to be true for immune systems. So it, uh, creatures that have more complex immune systems also have this longer developmental trajectory. So it looks as if there's this very, very general principle, this very general relationship between the very fact of childhood and the fact of intelligence. And that might be very informative if one of the things that we're trying to do is create artificial intelligences or understand artificial intelligences. You can even see this in, in neuroscience. So what you see very characteristically is this pattern of development where you have an early period of synaptogenesis, lots and lots of proliferation, lots of plasticity, and then there's a real tipping point. It isn't just a continuous process of development. You have an early period where you have lots and lots of uh, plasticity and synaptogenesis, and then you have this tipping point where the kinds of neural connections that have been made become strengthened, become efficient, become myelinated. You get very clear segregated networks, and then you have this point where uh, sorry, what happens is that you start out with this very plastic system with lots of local connection, and then you have a tipping point where that turns into a system that has many fewer connections but much stronger, more long-distance connections. So you start out with a system that's very plastic but not very efficient, and that turns into a system that's very efficient and not very plastic and not very flexible. And what all this suggests is that, and in, in, it's interesting that that isn't an architecture that's actually typically been used in, uh, in AI. But it's an architecture that biology seems to use over and over again to implement an intelligent system. So one of the questions you could ask is, how come? So why would you see this relationship? Why would you see this kind of characteristic neural architecture, especially for highly intelligent species? And of course, we're way out on the end of the distribution. So we're our chimpanzee young are producing as much food as they're consuming by the time they're seven. We aren't doing that even in forager cultures until we're 15, until well after adolescence. Um, and we have much larger brains, we have much uh, greater capacities for intelligence. And what I've proposed is that it may be that a good way of thinking about this strategy is that it's a way of resolving the kind of explore-exploit trade-offs that you see all the time in AI. So one of the problems that you have characteristically in AI is that as you get a greater range of solutions you can have, as the space of solutions gets to be bigger and bigger, that seems to be moving in the direction of a system that's more intelligent, a system that can do more different things, that can understand the world in more different ways. When you do that, what you also have is a big expansion of the search problem. So if there's many more different things that you can do, how can you search through that space more effectively? And one way to solve that problem that comes out of computer science is start out with a very wide-ranging exploration of the space, including parts that might turn out to be really unprofitable, and then gradually narrow in on solutions that are actually going to be more effective. So my slogan is that you could think about childhood as evolution's way of doing simulated annealing. So it's evolution's way of starting out with a very high temperature, very general, very broad search, and then narrowing it. And of course, the problem with the high temperature search, this gets to problems about scientific interdisciplinarity too, is that you could be spending a lot of time considering solutions that aren't very effective. And if you're considering solutions that aren't very effective, you aren't going to be very good at actually effectively going out and acting in the world and performing the four Fs and doing all the other things that, uh, all the other things that we need to do as adults. Um, and some of the interesting consequences of this picture of what intelligence is like is that many things that seem to be bugs in childhood, for instance, actually turn out to be features. So 
both literally and metaphorically, one of the things about children is that they're really noisy. Um, there's a lot of, they produce a lot of random variability. Um, when I'm trying to explain the annealing idea to a general audience, I'll say, look, you know, here's two ways of thinking about the system. Here's a big box full of solutions, and you could be wildly bouncing around this box going from point to point and bouncing off the walls, or you could just be staying in one place and carefully exploring the space. Which one of those sounds like your four-year-old? Um, that kind of that kind of randomness, variability, noise, things that we often think of as being bugs actually could be features from the perspective of this exploratory space. Things like executive function or frontal control, which we think typically think of as being a feature of adult intelligence, our ability to do things like inhibit, to do long-term planning, to keep our impulses down, to have attentional focus, which we tend to think of as being features, and our features from the exploit perspective could be bugs from the perspective of just trying to get as much information as you possibly can about the world around you. So being impulsive, acting on the world a lot, those are good ways of actually getting more data. They're not very good ways of actually planning effectively on the world around you. Um, and I think, so I think this gives you a really different picture about the kinds of things you should be looking for in intelligence. And it means that some of the things that have really been difficult for AI to do, like creativity, broadly speaking, being able to get to the right kind of new solutions, um, to get to solutions that are genuinely new and genuinely aren't just crazy, that is a capacity that human children ha are remarked, that's something that human children are remarkably good at in our empirical evidence, often better at it than human adults are. Um, it's something that AIs have actually had a really hard time implementing. Um, so you can have a lot of, you know, you can have a lot of random search or you can solve a problem that's very highly constrained, but the combination of being able to solve problems that are highly constrained and search for parts of search for solutions that are further away, that's been the thing that I think has been the most challenging problem for AI to solve. And that's a problem that children characteristically solve and solve more effectively and put more time and energy into than adults. Um, I think there are some other consequences for thinking about life, this particular life history as a solution to intelligence. Um, so for example, one of the things that we know children do is get into everything. Um, one of the things that we know that adult scientists do is do experiments. Um, and that kind of active learning where you're actually determining what your data sample is going to be, and you're actually literally and metaphorically expending energy on getting the right kind of data sample, not just the right kind of data sample that will be useful, but exactly the kind of data that will cause you to change the current view that you have of the world. That's actually a very unusual thing to be able to do. The idea that you would go out into the world and spend calories and energy in order to turn out to be wrong. That's something that children very characteristically do and that if Danny were here, he could tell you adults very characteristically don't do. Um, and another aspect of what children are doing that I think would be informative for thinking about intelligence in general is that children are cultural learners. So this, one of the effects of this life history for human beings in particular is that it gives us this capacity for cultural ratcheting. It gives us a way of balancing innovation and imitation. So if all we did as a result of cultural learning was imitate exactly the things that the previous generation had done, there would be no point in having cultural learning. And there's a constant tension between how much are you actually going to uh, be able to build on the things that the previous generation has 
done and how much are you actually going to be producing something that's new enough so it would be worth having the next generation imitate. And I think having this developmental trajectory where you start out with a broad exploration and then narrow in on actually exploiting particular solutions gives you a kind of uh, uh, a, a way of solving that problem in the context of, uh, in the context of cultural evolution. So it gives you a way. Now, there are other ways that you can do that even as an adult, like have an interdisciplinary problem or give adults things to do that are new. One of the ones that I've been interested in looking at recently is actually psychedelic uh, chemicals seem to have the effect, rather surprisingly and in great detail, of putting adult brains back into a state of plasticity that looks much more like childhood brains. So the effect of psychedelic drugs neurally is that it increases the local connections, it breaks the long distance network connections, it literally induces uh, plasticity, induces um, uh, more um, synaptogenesis. Um, It's interesting because these chemicals that have very different other properties but that are sort of have the effect of having psychedelic effects on phenomenology, LSD uh, and MDMA, so the ones that have been studied the most actually is psilocybin because LSD has a more moral panicky kind of reaction, but psilocybin, uh, LSD and MDA and uh, ketamine are all examples of very different chemicals that all have the same uh, phenomenological properties, and they all turn out to have the same kind of this neural effect of s driving the system back to something that looks more like childhood plasticity. Um, and that may actually be a really interesting way of testing some of those ideas, and that would be a good explanation for what otherwise seems very puzzling, which is that a small chemical change, at least by report, can lead people to have very large changes in the ways that they see the universe, or large changes in the, way that, in the ways that they... Uh, the ways that they behave. So one of my slogans is that you could think about psychedelics as doing for the individual what childhood does for the culture. So what childhood does for the culture is it takes a system that's relatively rigid and it injects a bunch of noise and variability into the system, shakes it up, shakes it out of its local optima, and then lets it settle into something new. And Thinking about learning in terms of active learning, so thinking about actually having computers that would go out and play and explore and get into things the way that young children are playing and exploring and getting into things, that is a sense in which children might be a model for intelligence um, that's different from the models of intelligence that we currently have. Thinking about systems that are learning from previous generations, that could be a model for intelligence that's different from the models of intelligence that we currently have. And finally, I think, Thinking in this kind of life history perspective that the thing that's distinctive about human intelligence is, is having a life history with a long childhood and a lot of caregiving is that our conceptions of moral relations, I think, change too when you think about, when you think about it that way. So our model for naturalizing morality has very much been a model, thanks to people like Robert, of contracts. It's been a model of having individual people who are more or less equal in their status and in their relation who are trying to develop a contract that will lead to the best um, outcomes for both of them. And if you think about both markets and democracy, those are essentially wonderful institutions and inventions that we had for maximizing that process of contract making so that we don't actually have to have face-to-face -face contracts to maximize our preferences. We can do it using institutions like markets or, or uh, democracies. But if you think about 
caregiving relations. And if this picture is right, caregiving relations are absolutely key to having this life history. If you think about the relation that actually means that every parent, no matter how bizarre or weird or crazy their child is, is committed to taking care of that child. That's a very, very different kind of relation than the contractual relation. It's asymmetric, right? So maybe your kids are gonna take care of you when you're an adult, but that doesn't really, when you're old, but it's not clear that they will, and that doesn't seem to be the motivation behind the, uh, the life history. It's something about protecting uh, next generation that can introduce variability into the system. So they have this kind of fundamental asymmetry, and they have this kind of fundamental transparency about them too, so that when you're attached to a baby, for example, it doesn't really matter very much. You don't know very much about what the properties of the baby are. You don't know whether that baby is gonna turn out to be valuable or not. There's just this kind of transparent attachment that you have. And again, it's having that transparent attachment that lets you have the noise and variability in mess, right? So if you only were uh, attached, and this is a bit of the modern um, middle-class American model, right? If you only were attached to your children because you thought they were gonna come out really well, um, you thought that you were attached to children because you wanted the children to come out as well as they possibly could, the sensible thing to do would be to go look out at the universe of children and find the ones that you thought were most likely to succeed and then have everybody put all their love and attention into those and then let the other ones perish, right? Now that seems like a crazy, that seems like a, um, that seems like a crazy system, um, but part of the reason why it's a crazy system is because if you think children are this source of unpredictable variability all the time, then what the kind of commit moral commitment that you need to be able to allow unpredictable um, variability to thrive is by not anticipating what the outcome of, uh, of caring for that child or caring for that person is going to be. And I think there's a lot of human, moral, and political um, there's a lot of human, moral, and political life that has that character of unconditional commitments to a person or to a community or to a nation. And there's a puzzle about why those unconditional, uh, why those unconditional commitments give us a kind of moral dimension that's different from the tit-for-tat contractual kinds of moral commitments. Um, so I think the general point that I'd want to make to go back to the, the Macy uh, conferences, one of the things that is really fascinating when you look at those conferences is that one of the things they did was have some of the very, very, very earliest studies of things like, of things like longitudinal language acquisition. So before language development was a discipline within the official disciplines of psychology, people in that group were doing that kind of work. And the, the general moral is, which I think echoes things that people here have said, is that if you actually want a good account of intelligence, then thinking about those developmental trajectories, both in the kind of literal sense of thinking about children and adults, but thinking about developmental trajectories more generally, thinking about developmental trajectories over history, thinking about the ways that you could adjust to an environment over time, those are actually gonna be a really crucial piece of the story that is one of the pieces of the story that's missing from the kinds of accounts that we typically have now. So, uh, um, th there are beautiful algorithms emerging in machine learning that nicely interpolate between simulated annealing and gradient descent. Yeah. So, you're describing those as extremes, but what, what these algorithms do is you start by um, sampling the space, um, and then from sampling the space, you use it to make an estimate of the distribution they were drawn from. Hmm. Um, then you resynthesize from the distribution you estimated, 
and then you use that to reestimate the distribution. And the way those propagate is they start looking like simulated annealing, but they end up looking like gradient descent. Um, in a nice way, the model grows. That might might be an interesting analogy. Yeah, I mean, one of the things really, that, the gradient sorry. descent is a function of temperature. So if you have a high temperature, you're not doing a gradient descent. You're, no, but you're but the big jumps, right? The, the, what I'm describing is not simulated annealing. Right. Sim simulated annealing is a simple thermodynamic model. Right. What I'm describing in a real what, what simulated annealing does a bad job of using is local gradient information, which is the basis of like back propagation of machine learning. And what I'm describing is something that in an inter interesting way crosses over, that you start, there's not temperature, you start by sampling a distribution broadly, and then as you resample it, you start to tighten the estimate, and then as you tighten the estimate, you end up doing something that looks like gradient descent. So it's, it, it, you know, like one of the mains of simulated annealing is what is the cooling schedule and what, how do you do the innovation? And this is a very different way to answer it that kind of crosses over between them. I want to go back. I like the simulated annealing uh, metaphor a lot. Um, but what I was thinking is that you were describing it as uh, simulated annealing terms, lowering the temperature. You do a lot of exploration and you lower the temperature. Uh, but simulated annealing um, itself typically raises and lowers the temperature on some schedule so you can jump out of the local. And I was thinking, you know, do, do children then become more plastic and so on? And then I was at, then what I came up with, I want your response about is adolescence like that. Yeah, right. Well, I think I, I mentioned last night, one of the things that we have discovered empirically looking at some of this is that if you look at physical problems, like, you know, trying to figure out how a machine works, what you see is something that looks like high flexibility and high search early on, and then it drops around school age and sort of stays the same, maybe that debate about is that the effect of school or the effect of school age, I think it's probably the effect of school age, sort of stays the same and then drops in adolescence. But if you take a social problem, what happens is that you actually get the most flexibility in adolescence. So what you get is the preschoolers are very flexible, then you kind of decline, adults are not very flexible, and adolescents are actually showing this peak which fits the neural evidence about plasticity in specifically in social areas, reintroduce plasticity in adolescence. And presumably something like Graduate school, you know, is a, a, a way of doing the same thing, um, that putting people in particular, or I sometimes think something like the center at Stanford, the year at the center for Stanford is sort of a way of plunking people into a situation in which they're forced into increased plasticity at a... So if I understand your argument, going to graduate school is like taking LSD? Yeah, well, it, it, at its best. I mean, of course, sometimes those two things are combined, but that the, the general idea would be that being put in a space in which the usual kinds of things, the usual uh, uh, exploit strategies that you've learned are not effective has some of the same effects. And I actually, I actually think that's true. I mean, like the vividness of phenomenology, the vividness of experience, um, the emotional ability, which is characteristic of preschoolers, characteristic of people under psychedelics, characteristic of going to the center at Stanford for a year. Um, those, I think a lot of those, I think actually those things are, not just as a joke, I think those things actually are connected to one another. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing about the simulated annealing, which is, you know, I've talked a lot to people who are actually doing machine learning, and what they typically say is, yeah, we use annealing schedules all the time, but that's one of those artisanal things, you know, it's, it's not, there's not sort of general proofs about here's the way that the annealing schedule should actually work, here's one that's more effective in this context, here's a general principle about 
aside from the sort of general optimization idea or the general getting out of a local minimum idea, or what's the relation between temperature and breath, those things don't seem to be, I mean, Tom and I, I should say, have worked on this together. Those things don't seem to be understood in a coherent theoretical way. They're not. I'll give you some references to these algorithms I'm mentioning in part in response to that. Yeah. yeah. May I share Wired's best scientific graphic of 2015 with you? It was from a paper by friends of mine, because we were doing these quantum algorithms for topological analysis of data. So this is called homological analysis of brain function. And I'm going to show you the picture that, that has a, uh, it's, they took functional MRI data of the brain. And so here is, I, I can actually. Yeah, oh, yeah, this is the psilocybin picture, yeah, so, right? so the one on the left shows yeah. shows the kind of, these are, they're right. basically clusters of thoughts, yeah. you know, thought, this thought, thought processes that, you know, and there are things about seven highly clustered processes within, they're talking between them with little links like this. And then the other one on the right is the same group of people having taken psilocybin. Yeah. Well, yeah. let me just summarize, if you haven't seen the picture, that when you take psilocybin, it's like, Wow, everything is connected, man. <laughs> well, I mean, it is literally true that if you look at the developmental neuroscience literature, you essentially see that graph but going in the other direction. So that yeah. what you see is lots and lots of local connection. I mean, this is, a, this is boilerplate about, yeah. you know, it's one of the few things we know about developmental neuroscience is that you start out with lots of local connectivity, going back to Hottenlocker. You start out with lots and lots of local connectivity, and then what happens is that you get segregation as... <laughs> Uh, as time goes on. So you get exactly this, the second picture, the segre segregated <laughs> So getting back to life history, you're printing a very broad picture. Um, uh, humans and great apes, but I don't know about other animals, uh, also have the characteristic that it's not that the, the group of uh, children all happen at the same time, progress in the same period and then go away. Uh, in human families, the siblings over a period of time, and there's a lot of sibling rivalry and mm -hmm. learning from siblings. I think that happens in most great apes, I'm not sure. Does it happen in other animals too, or is that unique? Well, one of the things that seems to be the different dimension is how, how many, um, so do you sort of have a, what happens in most animals is that you have a clutch of young all at once, right? Yeah. So yeah. all the siblings are there, and then they're all on the same kind of developmental progression. Well, something that I should have mentioned is that if you look at the parental investment side, the other side of this coin from just having the extended childhood, um, humans, you know, it's dangerous to ever say that humans are different from everybody else, but humans have pair bonding and alloparenting, including siblings being involved in care. So the fact that you've got that kind of distributed siblings means that older siblings are involved in a lot of caregiving. They have postmenopausal grandmothers. Um, uh, those three, and of course they have biological mothers, but it's those adaptations you see in individual species, but I don't think there's any other species that has all three of them, where you have pair bonding and alloparenting and, uh, and postmenopausal grandmothers and grandfathers, well, grandfathers are more complicated because they're not postmenopausal, but you have this extra 20 years, essentially, that people are investing in. So you have a much, not only do you have much more caregiving, but you have much more distributed caregiving. So part of, if part of the picture is supposed to be this picture of introducing a burst of noise, as it were, in each, in each cultural generation, part of getting that noise is just having these noisy children, but part of it is also the fact that very different people are giving them different kinds of information and different kinds of models about what the culture is like, because they're being cared for by all these different people, including uh, 
a range from older siblings up to grandparents with different needs. Young so, children also are educated by their grandparents. Yeah, killer whales are a wonderful example of this because... Yeah, exactly. Killer whales, for, for years, um, when I was talking about life history, I said, you know, we are also the only species that has postmenopausal grandmothers except killer whales. Killer whales, like, who, you know, go figure. Why, why killer whales? And it turns out that killer whales are also have more culture than uh, any other, even other smart cetaceans. So this particular, not just the adaptation to intelligence, but the adaptation to cultural, culturally transmitted intelligence seems to be connected to this uh, um, second generation transmission. Yeah, and and there's actually some pretty good evidence that because the um, young aren't dispersing for killer whales as they are with other cetaceans, the existence of the grandmother is actually changing the survival rates for the children and even for the grandchildren. So when the mother, when the grandmothers die, that affects the entire community. I'll just mention a just so story given. The average age, which I expect is rather like mine in this uh, in this room, that I really like, that someone proposed recently, which is if you think that there's actually some good anthropological evidence among human foragers that things like um, myths and songs and stories, in a way, things that you might think of as giving you some of the high level um, some of the high-level dimensions of what a culture's discovered, right? Not so much the details, but you know, here's the high-level principles that our culture uh, believes in our culture has discovered. That transmission comes from grandparents to grandchildren. It skips parents. So parents are actually in forager cultures. So parents are really busy telling you, here's what you should do specifically to hunt in this particular place. But the big, high the big ideas about what we've discovered about the world in general, that's actually coming from grandparents to, uh, from grandparents to grandchildren and skipping over, there's this nice idea of, there's intrinsic opposition between the parents and the children and the grandparents well, are, are doing it. Are uh, well, the older generation in general, right? Like in forager cultures, it's going to be the 50 to 7 year old. So the, the comforting Jesso story is that, of course, if you think that that's right, then remembering the things that happened yesterday if you're a grandparent is not actually going to be very useful because the kids already know that or the parents can know them. Whereas being able to talk a lot about the things that happened to you when you were very young, that's the stuff that you really want if you're going to transmit information appropriately to children. So I find this to be an extremely comforting. So numerical story. methods, those algorithms lead to di two diverging interspersed sets, <laughs> we'd argue. In what sense? You have these grandparents and the, those grandchildren, and then these grandparents and those grandchildren, right. but okay. you, you get two interspersed The alternating generations are entirely different they, things. You, they yeah. begin to diverge, and that might argue why we have like generations Cycle. that alternate. Cycle of history. Yeah. So, so this leads into something which is presumably the annealing schedule for the human mind mm -hmm. is optimized not just for the learning phase, but it's also, we also have the role of being teachers. Yeah. And caretakers, and, and so, it, so for instance, it may be that it's better if not, for instance, to turn off knowledge, learning language when you're trying to teach a child language so that you don't learn the child's language. I mean, yeah. Marvin Minsky's theory of why it got hard to learn languages when you're an adult. But um, the interesting thing, though, is with machine intelligence, the modes of transmitting information might actually be completely different. Hmm. So, in some sense, because we've 
uh, kind of a kludgy method of transferring things in our mind, yeah, knowledge in our mind into, well, or into our children, yeah, into yeah. our children's minds. Um, with, certainly with many representations of machine knowledge, there are much more efficient ways of doing that. So that in some sense, mm -hmm. a machine can be born with all the experience of the previous generations of machines. Right. Which, I'm, I'm curious if you think that would radically sort of change what kind of a kneeling schedule a machine. Well, I mean, I think that the proposal would be that if you actually had a machine that was doing that without loss and without noise, that would be bad. That, that actually what you'd want it would be to have each generation, as you were getting the information from the previous machine, you'd also want to introduce a bunch of extra noise and variability. So that that would might be true, but I don't see why that follows. Mm. Because you don't have that option in the human method of transmitting knowledge, because you can't be born with, but there's no mechanism by which you can transmit the knowledge to, to birth. But, but the, the argument that I'm making, so it, you know, we actually know something about some of the mechanisms of transmission. And there's this interesting debate in the cultural evolution community about things like what's called over-imitation. So there's this phenomenon that people talk about in cultural evolution, which seems to be very characteristically human, where we, when we're imitating what uh, another human does, we imitate even fine-level details that we don't really need to imitate, right? That we don't, that aren't obviously relevant to the uh, activity that the person's, that the person's performing. So you can take chimps and, and children and you have someone do, perform a whole bunch of complicated bells and whistles to bring about a particular kind of effect and the chimps will read through to what the actual problem is that you're trying to solve and the kids will put in the bells and whistles. And I think an interesting question if you're thinking about, you know, presumably the computers could do both, right? So they could, uh, the next generation of computers could simply take, here's all the details about, uh, about what the previous generation had done, but I think you'd end up with overfitting kind of problems, right? That's a kind of classic, a kind so. of classic overfitting problem. equivalent to just having somebody with a lot more experience and a lot more cases that they've learned from? That doesn't necessarily mean you overfit. That's sort of a different issue. Um, well, I mean, again, I think, I mean, you know, this is where it would be nice to actually have people working out the science or working out the computer science about what the conditions, what would you expect to have happen in those conditions versus other conditions. My gut feeling is with more information, you'd do better. Well, I'm not sure that that's true, because again, what might be happening is that having more information is just going to narrow the space of new solutions that you're going to search, right? The world, if the world has changed. Yeah, exactly. If the world is changing, that's well, okay, exactly so that, right. That, that's, yeah, that is another issue, but you can right. know that the world has changed, too. So you can weight them with time or something like that. I mean, if the world is changing, and, and there's interesting evidence that the ecological trigger for these life history changes that go with the big brain changes and the intelligence changes, I just saw a really wonderful uh, uh, paper about this, is that um, environmental, there's actually good evidence in birds, for example, that envir environmental variability is a trigger for these life history changes. So that the more, especially environmental variability within the lifetime of the organism, seems to be the thing that triggers a long life history versus a shorter so, life history. Put, put another way, I, I, I don't doubt that different information has different amounts of relevance. Right. Time, and there may be all, lots of other ways right here, but I think it would be, it seems unlikely to me that the exact right criteria is just the information that was available to you right from the moment you were born. 
happens to be just exactly the best set of information. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's much more likely that a, being able to choose from a wider set of information, weighting it appropriately, is actually much better, which is not an option for human children. Why is it not an option for human children? Because they don't, they don't actually have access to the direct experience. The experiences weren't recorded in a way that they can, they can uh, uh, that they can, in some sense, re retrain on. But they're out, they're out having experiences. They're out in the world having experiences. I mean, they're, right? That was your big box right. metaphor. Right. They're not, yeah. they're not constrained to an information transfer from the parents. They're also agents in the world. It seems world. to me interesting to look at what happens within a discipline like yeah. physics where you have, uh, you, know, you can have a group of people like the form, people who formed quantum mechanics, like Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, and one of the things that they did over the course of their life was to come back over and over again to the hope that an extreme excursion from what was known yeah. was what they needed. And often catastrophic, I'm not catastrophically but bad for their Useless. careers. I yeah. mean, giving, wanting to give up the uh, conservation of energy as Bohr did on two or three different occasions. Uh, Heisenberg, you know, said, okay, you need a new revolution in 1935 to, to uh, understand why some things that looked like electrons could penetrate a lot of lead and others couldn't. It turned out you just had to stick with the physics they knew and work it out, yeah. and it turned out that there's a, just a heavier version of the electron. Um, Heisenberg thought there were revolutions all the way up past the war, and you know he, he got the young German physicists after World War II into a whole mess of trouble because he, you know, they were sort of departing from what was really productive physics. So I just say this because you could you know, if the opposite of a trauma is a traum, uh, the, um, you know, they had this dream experience as very young people, Bohr when he was 1913, and then later, and then and Heisenberg when he was practically a kid in 1924, 5, 6, and then they kept looking for that again, you know, over and over again. Yeah. Um, so you can have the sort of the, the consequences of over-conservatism, being, you know, growing old and not willing, not being willing to meet uh, new ideas in some way to have a big enough, a high enough temperature of excursion in the annealing process. But you could also, yeah, if you, if, you, if you designed a computer that was always making yes, huge yes. excursions, <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be in a, a world of hurt intellectually. That's right. So, I mean, it seems to me, you know, one of the problems is how do you know contextually whether right. it's time for a high temperature or a low temperature, right? This is relevant to what uh, Robert was talking about, about exactly how do you balance those things across, uh, uh, across the uh, scientific discipline. And in a way, you know, evolution kind of gives it to us for free with childhood because children aren't sitting there and having to, we're not sitting there sort of saying, well, in this context, should we really be exploratory or not? Or is this insane pretend imagination, imagined fantasy actually gonna turn out to be useful in the long run or not, they just do it, right? They're just, that's just the way that they're designed. But when you actually have inst social institutions that are trying to do the same thing, that are trying to balance those things, or when you're trying to design a computer algorithm, then the question about are there contextual cues that you could use gets to be a really relevant problem. And there's a little bit of work in the developmental area. So there is a little bit of stuff about when you get uh, these kind of uh, live fast, die young 
life history strategies even within a species versus having a very, very long extended exploratory period strategy. And there's a lot of debate. It's not obvious. One thing is when the environment's variable in particular kinds of ways over particular time scales, it's an advantage to explore. But it isn't as simple as just, and it looks as if, if you've got a lot of resources, then you can afford to have more exploration, which you can't when you have fewer resources. So there's some evidence that you know kids who are under stress are maturing, uh, animals that are under stress mature more quickly. Um, but that's very also very, very under very under researched and, and the intuitions that you have don't necessarily translate into what happens when you actually do the math. There are people well, like is, yeah, so. well, this is super domain relative, right? So um, yeah, there are, you get pretty cool periods for even language learning when you're yeah. really early, but then like for your know, music appreciation much later, like when you're eighteen or something. So yeah, so the annealing has to be like domain relative. So I guess what I'm wondering, are there domains where like kids are super conservative? Um, Unexploratory and spun things. Actually, I think there's an interesting. Yeah, so later on, we get. Yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, example that might be relevant to that, which is, you know, my my joke is the kids have a single utility theory, which is be as cute as you possibly can be, and they're <laughs> extremely good at maximizing it, that utility, and no other utility function is relevant to you if you're a kid. But actually, it turns out that being as cute as you possibly can be is not trivial in the sense that. Having a caregiver environment where that's highly stable and highly predictable and where you don't have to do any cognitive work in terms of wondering whether you're actually going to be taken, taken care of or not, that's something, that, that's something that's not transparent or easy. And that's a context where I think children are extremely conservative. So, you know, when it comes to their parents, they don't want variability. They don't want change. They don't want noise. What they want is something... What, what they want is a very, very, very conservative. They're very conservative about that, even if they're not conservative about that. Believe it would be as cute as you could possibly. <laughs>